0: We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at Bellencat.com Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Madison Derbyshire from the Comment and Analysis Desk. I know I look forward to producing the Big Read each week, and if you love listening, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. That way, you'll be notified when new episodes are recorded each week, and you'll be supporting world-class journalism from the reporters at the FT. In this episode, Tom O'Sullivan, the Deputy Analysis Editor, explains the complex origins of the conflict in Yemen. The country has been ravaged by a man-made catastrophe rooted in a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now, those who have managed to survive are growing desperate about what future their children may have in the country. Nasser al-Sakaf and Andrew England report. For more than a decade, Mohammed Hassan felt secure in his job, inspecting and offloading goods as food, oil and medicine were shipped into the Red Sea port of Hodaida. Yemen's largest cargo port has long been the main artery for the country, and Mr Hassan always believed ships would dock there even as conflict tore his nation apart. Then in November, the Saudi-led coalition backing Yemen's exiled government in a civil war with Iranian-aligned Houthi rebels tightened its sea blockade on the country. The impact was immediate. Mr Hassan and other port workers lost their jobs. Food prices soared by more than 30%, and the cost of fuel doubled the father of four, a wiry man who looks older than his 35 years, pulled three of his children, the oldest age just nine, out of school to work on the streets of the port city. Mr Hassan says, I didn't want my children to stop their studies, but prices of food increased so much and I can't feed my family. I had to make a difficult choice, either ask my children to sell sweets with me or starve, so I chose the first. The family now earns about 1,000 rials a day, the equivalent of $4, and half of what Mr Hassan earned at the port. He is, however, still better off than many. More than 8 million Yemenis, almost 30% of the population, are on the brink of starvation. All are victims of a man-made catastrophe that started as a Yemeni power struggle three years ago before morphing into a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran that has left at least 10,000 people dead and thousands more wounded. As the two regional powers ramp up their battle for influence, with the US under President Donald Trump throwing his weight behind Riyadh to counter the Islamic Republic, Yemen's war has become the principal theatre where their allies are in direct conflict. It has already created a humanitarian crisis and risks escalating beyond Yemen's borders. Gaining control of rebel-held ports, particularly Hodeida, is crucial to the Saudi-led campaign to squeeze the Houthi-controlled north of the country and stem what the coalition claims is the flow of arms to it from Iran and Hezbollah, the Lebanese militant movement. In the face of international pressure, the coalition eased the blockade on Hodaida last month, saying it would allow aid and commercial goods to enter the port for 30 days but it has done little to end the suffering in a city where children beg on most street corners and hospitals bereft of resources struggle to treat emaciated infants. Residents fear that Hodaida is set to become the next big battleground in the conflict as pro-government forces, backed by Saudi airstrikes, advance from their southern bases in an offensive to seize the port and encircle Sanaa, the Houthi-held capital. Islam Montessor, and repairman, whose children are among those begging around the port, says, if the war arrives in Hodeida, we will all die inside our houses. Defensive against the port city was launched after Houthi rebels killed Ali Abdullah Saleh, their erstwhile ally and the former president who dominated the country for four decades. His death in December has shaken up the dynamics of the conflict as rival groups seek to exploit the power vacuum he has left. The coalition wanted to exploit Saleh's political clout and cunning to shatter the rebel forces. Senting betrayal, the Houthi killed Saleh after days of clashes in Sana'a. They've since tightened their grip on the capital, reportedly arresting and killing the former president's allies. But they have lost the political cover their four year old alliance with Saleh and his General People's Congress provided them. Riyadh reacted by intensifying its bombardment of Houthi areas. Faria al Muslimi co-founder of the SANA Centre for Strategic Studies, says Saleh's death is both the closure of a bloody phase and the opening of another bloody phase. Anyone trying to push for a military solution has the upper hand, but there is no military solution. It means politics is on hold. We can expect further escalation and worse regionalisation of the conflict. Both Riyadh and Abu Dhabi consider the Houthi members of the Zaidi sect of Shia Islam to be Iranian puppets. The Gulf powers framed the war as an example of Tehran stoking conflict in their backyard. The ports blockade was imposed after Houthi rebels fired a missile at Riyadh that the Saudi government claimed was supplied by Iran. Tehran denies arming the Houthis, a group analysts describe more as an Iranian ally than a surrogate. Still, it serves Iran's interest to see its regional rivals bogged down in an expensive and damaging conflict at limited cost to Tehran, they add. Bruce Rydell, a former CIA analyst and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project, recently wrote, Houthi propaganda plays to the line that Yemen is under attack by a Saudi-American-Israeli conspiracy. A major consequence of the war is to push the Houthis and Iran and Hezbollah closer together. Abdul Malik al-Maklafi, Yemen's foreign minister, says that seizing Hodeidah and surrounding Sena are essential to forcing the Houthis to the negotiating table. He says, we have to control Hodaida. It was, and it still is, being used to smuggle Iranian weapons. It's one of the main sources of income through customs duties to the Houthi, and we want to deprive them of that. Mr McLaughlin insists that aid could come through government-controlled ports in the south. The Saudi-backed administration is based in Aden. But close to 80% of imports depend on access through Hodaida and neighbouring Salif port, according to the United Nations. It said in a report in November that despite the damage inflicted on Hodaida during the conflict, there is no viable substitute for the port both in terms of infrastructure and proximity to Yemen's largest population centres. Mr McLaughy says criticism of the port embargo has become politicised. He asks, can the international community guarantee that weapons will not enter through it again, that the Houthis will not benefit and make money from it? The narrative fits with that of his exiled government's Saudi backers. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who as defence minister orchestrated the kingdom's military intervention in Yemen in March 2015, described the missile attack on Riyadh as an act of war. The shock resignation of Lebanese Prime Minister Saeed Hariri, while he was apparently detained in Saudi Arabia in November, was viewed as part of the Crown Prince's efforts to indirectly exert pressure on Hezbollah, a key player in Lebanon's government, and alleged backer of the Houthi. Three weeks later, after Mr Hariri had returned to Beirut and reversed his resignation, the Houthis launched another missile at Riyadh. Saudi Arabia's defence systems intercepted the rockets, but the attacks signalled a dangerous escalation. Days before the second attack in as many months, the US presented what it claimed was conclusive evidence that Tehran was supplying arms to the Houthis. It included remnants of what the Pentagon said was an Iranian-made ballistic missile fired at Riyadh in November. Nikki Haley, US ambassador to the UN, said, you will see us build a coalition to really push back against Iran and what they are doing. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif responded on Twitter, saying, while Iran has been calling for ceasefire aid and dialogue in Yemen from day one, the US has sold weapons enabling its allies to kill civilians and impose famine. No amount of alternative facts or alternative evidence covers a US complicity in war crimes. Mr Zarif was referring to the criticism that both the US and the UK have received for supplying Saudi Arabia with arms to bombard Yemen, destroying markets, hospitals and homes. More than 3,200 civilians were reportedly killed by coalition Saudi-led forces between March 2015 and August 2017, according to a UN human rights report. After 68 people were killed by airstrikes on December 26, including 14 members of the same family in Hodaida province, Jamie McGoldrick, the UN humanitarian coordinator for Yemen, said the bombings prove the complete disregard for human life that all parties, including the Saudi-led coalition, continue to show in this absurd war. In cities and towns where there is no fighting on the ground, like Sana'a, life appears, on the surface at least, to be normal. But residents live in fear of the buzz of warplanes overhead. In areas that have become the front line, such as Taiz, which has been bombed by coalition planes and shelled by Houthi artillery, residents live in misery, wondering where their next meal will come from, and fearing diseases such as cholera. In Taiz, traditionally a relatively prosperous city, thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes and move to safer neighbourhoods. Those who leave the city are forced to take circuitous routes over mountain roads to avoid the fighting and navigate checkpoints manned by myriad armed groups that dot the countryside. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, considered one of the most dangerous affiliates of the global terror network, has taken advantage of the chaos to deepen its hold on remote areas of the desert plains in the south and west of the country. Yet while the death toll mounts, the coalition struggled to make headway against the Houthis, a battle-hardened group from Yemen's rugged northern mountains that fought six campaigns against Saleh's regime in the 2000s. Rafat al akali a Yemeni analyst and former government minister, says the way it was executed by the coalition was so bad. The so-called internationally recognised government, which is very weak, has lots of corruption and is divided into many fronts and all these airstrikes on civilian areas only make things worse in terms of not making people want Saudi help. Mr Akali returned to his country during the 2011 Arab uprisings, armed with an MBA from Canada and brimming with hope. The revolution ended Saleh's 33-year hold on power when he was forced to step down to be replaced by his deputy, Abd Rabu Mansur Hadi, in 2012. As an economic crisis deepened in the Middle East's poorest state, the Houthis moved into Sana'a in late 2014, with promises of rooting out graft, a message that resonated among long-suffering Yemenis, Mr Akali says. The war erupted soon after, forcing Mr Hardy to flee to Riyadh. To many Yemenis, he is merely an exiled figurehead presiding over a government dependent on Saudi air power, Emirati special forces and a loose alliance of ultra-conservative Salafists, Southern secessionists and tribal fighters. Salaire's GPC is weak and divided, the party's forces and members scattered between the government and rebels. Mr Akali says there is complete fragmentation of everything, of society, of state. You have different groups vying for power and each group further fragmenting into smaller groups. That's the biggest challenge even when the war stops. He clings to the hope that a political solution can be reached if there is a serious international effort to end the conflict. Mr Akali says a lot of people feel that it's solvable. What you often hear is that Yemen is not Syria and it's not Libya. The players are still known, but with time it's becoming more and more complicated. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface.